Hi, this is Saket Brahman from the OrthoClips podcast series, and today I am with Dr. John Fowler, who is an associate professor of orthopedic surgery at the University of Pittsburgh, where he's also the assistant dean for medical student research, and we're going to be talking about the evolution of ultrasound and hand surgery. Thanks, John, for coming on the show. I appreciate it. It's great to be here. Excellent. So let's get into it. Um, so ultrasound and hand surgery, how did you get interested in pursuing this field? Tell me what, was there a particular patient or a case or just something you saw? Um, obviously, you've kind of focused in on this a little bit. I know you've got a book out there on this. What got you interested? Well, first started in residency at Temple, I got very frustrated when we would send patients away with carpal tunnel syndrome to get their nerve conduction studies, and then it would take three or four months for them to get those nerve conduction studies. And half the time the patient would come back and either hadn't gotten them because things got lost in the shuffle or they were in tears because they thought the test was so horrible and it hurt and they'd never want to do that again. And, you know, that really got me kind of looking at some of the literature to see, was there some other confirmatory test for carpal tunnel syndrome that we could use instead of nerve conduction studies? And that research led me to ultrasound. Okay, that's a pretty compelling reason to, to look into it. So maybe you can tell me, why is there a need for ultrasound for diagnostic and therapeutic purposes in hand surgery? I mean, you've got a lot of hand surgeons out there maybe listening to this thinking, you know, they've been successful for years and their approach to how they manage and, you know, both diagnostically and also um, maybe how they do their injections. Um, why... Uh, do you think they may need to change or why is this better? Well, I wouldn't call it a need, but I would say it's more of a complementary uh, modality. I can probably tell you that if you went back 30 or 40 years and asked most surgeons why we needed something like MRI, they would have told you it was wasteful. We didn't need that. And our clinical exam was good enough. But now we have MRIs for lots of different things and for rotator cuff tears and for spine and uh, for really anything. And the same could probably be set of, of CT uh, scans as well. I mean, how many times do we order CT scans and it provides us more information? So I would say that ultrasound is a nice uh, kind of complementary modality that can provide a lot of additional information. I think sometimes it can clear up um, some inconsistencies in the exam. Uh, you know, someone that you maybe think has carpal tunnel syndrome, but their nerve conduction studies are normal. Uh, I think in those uh, situations, sometimes uh, ultrasound can show some changes in the nerve that would confirm what you thought on clinical exam. And then in addition, as a, as a hand surgeon, I get referred lots of patients from their primary care doctors or for someone else with positive nerve conduction studies. And when I talk to the patient in the office, I ask them about their symptoms and they have no numbness in their hand. They don't wake up at night. They have no weakness. Uh, and they're really there for a trigger finger, but their primary care doctor for some reason ordered nerve studies. And then I have to go through the whole process of explaining to them why I think they don't have carpal tunnel syndrome. And I recently published a study looking at patients uh, that have no clinical signs and symptoms of carpal tunnel syndrome and showed that 43% of patients in that series had positive nerve conduction studies despite no symptoms. And the ultrasound actually was very helpful in showing people that their nerves actually looked okay. So like I said, I think it could be a nice complementary test that can sometimes provide more information. And uh, I think the real power lies in putting it at the hands of the surgeon. So as I mentioned with my experience at Temple and residency, you see a patient that you want to get nerve studies on for carpal tunnel syndrome. You have to then refer them to someone else for those nerve tests, as, as very few of us do our own studies. Now, some private practices are lucky enough to have a nerve conduction specialist in their office, but for most of us, 
we're sending that patient to PMNR or to neurology that requires the patient to make a separate appointment, pay a separate copay. Now, some people can get the results either faxed to them or over the phone, and then we can talk and schedule surgery if they need it. But a lot of practices require that patient to come back into the office to talk about the test, talk about surgery. So that's another day off of work, another copay, another just time spent talking about things and then scheduling the final treatment. So if you take ultrasound and give it to the surgeon who can do it themselves, and we actually have several studies showing that it actually doesn't take that much for a surgeon to learn how to do an ultrasound of the median nerve, maybe five minutes of total practice, and people can identify the correct structure and measure it uh, very accurately with just minimal training, uh, that then you can make it very efficient. So I see a patient in the office, I think they have carpal tunnel, I do an ultrasound that takes me about 30 seconds, I have my answer, and then we can proceed. Now, a lot of people would argue, do you even need the ultrasound? And I think most hand surgeons agree that carpal tunnel syndrome is a clinical diagnosis in most cases. At the same time, I think like we said, with uh, MRI and rotator cuff, I mean, most of us can see a patient who fell and can't raise their arm over their head, but we would still get the MRI a lot of times to confirm the diagnosis and also to get more information. And I would say that the ultrasound, just like nerve conduction studies are the same way, it's to get an objective measure of nerve function and uh, then proceed with treatment after that. Makes a lot of sense. Um, and you mentioned a little bit of uh, data, especially some of your own data. Is there any other important data in the literature about the advantages of ultrasound, uh, both for carpal tunnel disease and maybe for other indications that you think um, is important to point out? I mean, you don't have to be exhaustive, but maybe it's just some, some key learning points uh, from the literature that we know. Sure. I mean, I think one of the important things to recognize is that ultrasound for carpal tunnel has been around a very long time. Uh, a guy named Bookberger and in one of the uh, American Journal of Radiology back in 1992 published probably one of the seminal articles describing the use of ultrasound to detect nerve swelling at the wrist. Uh, but since then, there's probably been, you know, a thousand articles on ultrasound for peripheral nerve compression. And there's plenty for carpal tunnel as well. Uh, I did mention some of the advantages to, carpal, uh, to the ultrasound for carpal tunnel. It decreases the false positive rate. And I think really what's happened with nerve conduction studies is they've added so many different tests to a standard nerve conduction exam. So they're checking multiple different levels, multiple different comparisons. And if you look at a standard nerve conduction study now, they're looking at 10, 12, 14 different variables. It's a screening test, but remember, nerve conduction studies were never supposed to be a screening test. They were supposed to be a confirmatory test. So by having all these different variables, you actually decrease your specificity, and you actually would like to have a high specificity for a confirmatory test. That's one nice thing about ultrasound is it actually has a pretty high specificity and actually probably as good as nerve conduction studies from that standpoint. We've talked a lot about carpal tunnel, but it's actually a fairly good test for cubital tunnel as well. And going back to the same principles with the carpal tunnel exam is that sometimes it catches people with early disease. Someone you think based on nerve studies is normal. And I would say that especially in young people, about 30% of all of my patients I see in the office that have classic cubital tunnel syndrome. Uh, so, you know, they get numbness and tingling in their small and ring fingers. When they flex their elbow, their hand falls asleep. They start getting some weakness with grip strength due to the ulnar nerve lack of function. And especially in young people, if I get a 25-year-old that comes in like that, their nerve test is almost always negative. I think they're young and healthy and their nerve is very robust and it responds. But if you do an ultrasound on those patients, their nerve will almost always be swollen. So I think that just confirms the diagnosis. Now, you may not treat them any differently. You might still splint them for, uh, you know, six weeks to six months. But it also kind of gives them, I guess, credibility. And I think it validates some of their complaints uh, because it definitely shows some objective changes in, in nerve function. 
I think one of the things I'm looking at now, I, I would say that most of the research very definitively says that ultrasound is very strong as a confirmatory test for carpal tunnel syndrome, but I'm trying to look at what happens afterwards. If I talk to my senior partners, they'll say, well, one of the reasons they order nerve conduction studies is that if they do surgery on a patient and they don't get better, they would like to be able to repeat the test and see if it changed. So say that someone does uh, surgery for carpal tunnel, they, they get a nerve or the patient doesn't get better. They get a nerve test, but the numbers look better. They can then reassure that patient, look, your nerve is functioning better. Maybe you just need more time or maybe something else is going on. You've got a vitamin deficiency or maybe you have a peripheral neuropathy that more surgery is not going to help. Whereas if they get the nerve test after surgery is the same or worse, they might think maybe they did an incomplete release or maybe there was a nerve injury. So they like it from that standpoint. So a lot of my research now is looking at post-operative changes and seeing how does the nerve respond to surgery? Does it shrink back down to normal size? Does it stay swollen? Are there any other factors that can predict who's going to do well and who doesn't do well with surgery? Really interesting, uh, especially some of the uh, next steps, I guess, to address some of the unanswered questions that you guys are working on. Um, maybe you can tell me, give me some, maybe some clinical examples or try to just explain how you are using ultrasound in your practice. Maybe just kind of put us in your shoes for a day and let us know um, what kind of cases you're using it on. Give me, give, maybe give a couple of clinical examples people can relate to. Sure. I would say most of my, my research is on ultrasound for carpal tunnel. And so I, I definitely do that for every patient that I think has uh, clinical signs of peripheral nerve compression, I'm going to do an ultrasound. So you know, clinical example, I've got a 65-year-old female that comes in. She has numbness and tingling in the median nerve distribution. She wakes up at night and has to shake her hand out. And she's noticed some clumsiness uh, with picking up pills and things because she can't feel them. I would do my normal exam. So she's got a positive Phelan test, a positive Tonell sign, no thenar atrophy, but a little bit of weakness with APB uh, strength. I do the ultrasound, a normal nerve uh, at the wrist, and we take the measurement at the level of the pisiform, which is right at the wrist crease. Multiple studies have shown that's the most sensitive and specific place to measure the nerve. I place the probe right at the wrist crease, and then I measure the cross-sectional area. And normal nerves are less than 10 millimeters squared, and her nerve would probably measure a 12 or 13 millimeters squared. That would then confirm the diagnosis, which we knew anyway from exam, and then I would proceed with treatment. One of the nice things about uh, the ultrasound is that if she decided that she didn't want to proceed with surgery at that point, but wanted some relief, I could then provide an ultrasound guided injection uh, to relieve the symptoms. And there was a great stutter study by Fraser Leversedge out of Duke, which uh, used uh, latex uh, paint and they injected uh, carpal tunnels either under ultrasound or under Landmark based injections. And I think they had about 30 patients in each group. And in the ultrasound guided group, they didn't hit the nerve with the latex in any of the 30 injections, but in the Landmark based group, they injected the nerve three times. So it just goes to show that we think we're so good with some of these landmark-based injections, but when you really look at the data, maybe we're not as good as we think, and those three patients could have had nerve injuries from the injection. So with that said, you know, another example would be my patients to come in with CMC arthritis. So I just mentioned I use it a lot for carpal tunnel syndrome, but I probably give between 10 and 12 ultrasound-guided injections per day, whether that's for subacromial uh, impingement in the shoulder, whether it's for CMC arthritis or radiocarpal injections. I think it's really nice to guide the needle into the joint. For certain joints, like a radiocarpal injection can be challenging. I think we've all been in the ER and you've got someone that you get called down to see for a rule out septic wrist and their wrist is big and swollen and you're sticking in a 21 or 18 gauge needle into the wrist that already hurts and bumping off the bones trying to, to get in. And then 
you think you get a dry tap, but you don't know where you're really in the joint or you're just missing. Ultrasound's a fantastic modality for that because you can actually watch the needle go right into the joint and you can be sure that you got in the right spot. I think ultrasound can also be used for diagnostic purposes for masses. I think it's great for things like splinters and foreign bodies. As you know, uh, unless something's metallic, it usually doesn't show up on x-ray, but a lot of people that get foreign bodies have either wood or, or glass. Uh, it shows up right away on the ultrasound, and it can also uh, even help later on in the OR because then you know exactly where it is, and you can put a little dot on their finger uh, based on the ultrasound about where you're going to make your incision. I think it's very nice for soft tissue masses. I mean, I think we can all diagnose a ganglion cyst from across the room, but it often gives the patients a little bit of reassurance. You can show them it's a fluid-filled mass that's homogenous. But for certain things like uh, lipomas or for giant cell tumors or hemangiomas, uh, it can be very helpful. I think for things like AV malformations, you can put the Doppler uh, on there with the uh, ultrasound probe. You can see if something has flow, because uh, that can be very uh, helpful in the OR uh, later on or can uh, guide your treatment. Some people might think about aspirating a ganglion cyst, but if you put the ultrasound on it and there's a, a vascular flow, that might not be a good idea in the office to stick a needle uh, into an AV malformation, so it can be very helpful in that sense as well. There are people using ultrasound for fractures. Uh, I think that that's probably much more popular in, in third world countries that don't have easy access to x-rays, but they can have a portable ultrasound machine. Uh, but at least in my practice, I'm not using it for fractures. I think it's very nice for showing things like tendonitis. You can actually see tenosynovitis around the tendons, and that can sometimes guide treatment. I can do an ultrasound-guided injection into the tenosynovitis, and that can um, relieve symptoms as well, or even for something like Dequervain's tenosynovitis of the wrist, where we know that people that have two separate subcompartments for the EPB and APL are at higher risk for not doing well with non-surgical treatment. That might make me say, okay, we'll give you one injection, but if you fail this, we know you have a separate subsheath you should proceed to surgery, whereas someone that doesn't have a separate subsheath, I might be more willing to give multiple injections. So you got a lot of, uh, a lot of potential applications that you just went through that in your typical office day, um, you could use this for. Um, maybe we'll just wrap up by asking, what are the biggest challenges or humps, I guess, to get over for surgeons who are thinking about doing this? I guess I would think, and I'm an orthopedic trauma surgeon, so I don't have a lot of familiarity with the technique myself. And I would think that it's, you know, it's a technique. I'd have to kind of go to a course maybe to learn it. It's, you know, you got to have a machine. Um, what are, what are some of the, what would you suggest are some ways to help surgeons who are seriously thinking about it to make it as easy as possible um, to take advantage of this? Yeah, I think you hit a couple of the, the nails in the head right there. I think you mentioned it very early on that a lot of people feel like, hey, my practice is good, as, good enough as it is. You know, why should I change anything? I mean, there's a lot of very uh, experienced and talented surgeons out there who don't need ultrasound guidance to get a needle into a joint. They've been doing it for 25 years, and why change something that's working well from them? So I think that's a, that's a big factor. And so part of that hurdle is, is just continuing education and trying to show where that's going to improve patient care uh, in certain scenarios. I think you mentioned the machine and uh, the cost behind that. You know, a lot of these ultrasound machines have come down in price. You get some of the handheld ones like uh, Butterfly or Clarius, and I have no financial uh, interest in any of these companies um, uh, that can cost between uh, $2,000 and $5,000. And that's, you know, very, uh, uh, way, very nice way to kind of get into the game by having something that's relatively inexpensive uh, and portable. You know, some of the machines that 
um, we have in the office can run 80 to 80 to hundred thousand dollars. And so for a private practice to invest that amount of money, there better be a good return on investment. Now for most of these, um, diagnostic exams and for the injections, you can bill, uh, for those. And for example, uh, if I were to do a subacromial shoulder injection in the work RVU world, that's worth 0.7 work RVUs for an injection. If I use ultrasound guidance for that injection, it takes it up to 1.4 work RVUs. So you can see it actually doubles the value of the injection. And different calculations would show that for kind of a run-of-the-mill mid-level ultrasound machine that, say, costs $50,000, if someone was to do uh, about 250 injections per year, which really isn't too many based on some of the things I talked about just a few minutes ago about all the different applications, that machine would pay for itself in three years. So I think the cost has really come down. That's going to help things overall. But I think the big thing, as you mentioned, is just learning the techniques. And as I mentioned, I, I started off doing a lot of this for ultrasound diagnosis of, of carpal tunnel, but then I started just trying to use it for everything in order to try to get better at it. Uh, like anything, in orthopedics in particular, the first time we've all done arthroscopy, we were probably all horrible at it, unless we were just one of those people that was, was slick from the beginning. But the more you do something, the better you get at it. So the more you do arthroscopy and try to expand your indications and try to do things that are more difficult, the better their skills will become. And the same is true of ultrasound as well. So I can tell you that a few years ago, I would not have felt very good trying to diagnose something like radial tunnel syndrome on ultrasound. But every time I see a patient that has any kind of elbow problems, I'll try to find the, the radial nerve uh, going underneath the supinator just to see if I can find it quickly. Now, that's the other balance, too, is that this does take time. So I'm a busy hand surgeon. I usually see 50 to 60 patients during an office day. So every time I pull out the ultrasound machine, that takes at least a couple minutes. And so you definitely have to balance using the ultrasound and trying to learn and get better at things. But they're just trying to stay on time overall. So I think those are the, the, biggest, the biggest hurdles is, uh, as you mentioned, cost, um, education, trying to learn how to do it and get better at it. Um, and then just... Um, yeah, those are the big ones. Great stuff, John. Um, that was great. I mean, a lot of uh, wealth of information there for our listeners um, from someone who's um, pretty experienced and, um, like many of you, is busy hand surgeon who um, has learned how to incorporate a new technique, hopefully for the benefit of his patients. Uh, so, John, I want to thank you again. Um, Again, we've been speaking with uh, uh, Associate Professor John Fowler um, from the University of Pittsburgh. He's a hand surgeon, and he is, he's been on the uh, show with us today talking about uh, the evolution of ultrasound and hand surgery. John, thank you very much. Thanks for having me.